Welcome to the C21 Podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. It's been a busy week for the C21 team at MIPCOM 2023 in Cannes. So busy, in fact, that we've got more than we can fit into a single episode. If you thought Barbenheimer was big, wait till you get a load of what's coming up. Yes, it's two podcasts for the price of one today, folks. In our first instalment, Emmy-winning showrunner Frank Dolger on his new near-future drama Concordia and its positive portrayal of artificial intelligence. Banerjee, global head of scripted Christian Wakanda on how cutbacks among streamers is impacting the marketplace. Asatcha Media Group co-founder Marina Williams on what's next for the fast-growing pan-European production studio. Helium founder and chief creative officer Mark Fennessy on Paramount Plus drama's Last King of the Cross and Paper Dolls. But first, Amazon MGM Studios distribution chief Chris Ottinger on selling the streamers originals in Cannes for the first time and how the programme licensing business is opening up again. Amazon Studios moved into licensing its streaming originals to third parties for the first time with the launch of a new sales unit back in May, following its acquisition of film studio MGM last year. Amazon MGM Studios distribution made its MIPCOM debut this week with a slate that includes Bosch spin-off Bosch Legacy, Ben Affleck, Michael Jordan, Nike Movie Air and MGM Plus Originals Billy the Kid and Hotel Cocaine. Spearheading the division is Chris Ottinger and he spoke with Ed Waller about the thinking behind these moves, how the strategy sits within the broader marketplace shifts in streaming and how the distribution business is opening up again. I'm Chris Ottinger. I'm head of distribution for Amazon MGM Studios. So uh, this is your first outing here in Cannes. Tell us what you're here uh, doing. Well, we've got uh, our usual complement of MGM stuff that we're bringing to market. A lot of series, a lot of movies. But on top of that, we're bringing our Amazon original product also. So we've got a new set of Amazon original movies, including Guy Ritchie's The Covenant, uh, 13 Lives, um, Samaritan uh, with Sylvester Stallone, uh, Shotgun Wedding with J-Lo, like wonderful, wonderful, big, you know, wide release movies and also original series. So uh, Bosch Legacy, uh, Maradona, our big Latin original uh, that performed amazingly well on Prime Video. So what, what are you actually offering to buyers here? Is it ex- obviously not exclusivity? What, what sort of windowing and and rights are you offering from those, particularly the Amazon shows? Yeah, for the Amazon shows, our windowing is generally about 18 months off Prime Video. So we usually have about an 18-month exclusive window on Prime Video before we're offering uh, products into the market. But then once they're being uh, offered into the market, we're selling anything from fully non-exclusive windows to co-exclusive with Amazon Prime Video. So it's a it's and and it's all on demand rights are available as well. So it's a full complement of rights. It's just windowed back. And are you offering them to services and platforms that traditionally might compete with Prime Video? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's uh, our feeling is that our customers, like we are a super customer obsessed, customer focused company. Like that's probably the most important leadership principle at Amazon. Um, And so with that mental model, it's not hard for us to think that our customers might also watch somebody else's service. We understand that. And so if somebody didn't find our show on Amazon, on Prime Video, and they find it somewhere else, knowing that it's come from us because our branding's on it, you know, we know that these are our shows, uh, 
that's a good way to serve that customer as well. So we're not, like our strategy is much more around supporting our customers and giving them options to view wherever and however they may find it. And what about uh, the idea of exclusivity? If somebody said, well, that shows it's, it's had it, you've it got all your bang for your buck on Prime Video. Let's have it exclusively on my platform. Well, if you're if you're customer obsessed, you would be reluctant to take something away from customers that they've paid for, essentially, right? So it's okay for us to put something somewhere where uh, they might find it, where they weren't finding it with us. But to actually take it off of the home service would be problematic, I think. So in our Amazon Originals, we tend to always keep stuff live on the service. That doesn't mean we might not reevaluate that later on down the road. Certainly our MGM product, we can sell exclusively. Um, and there's a bunch of different MGM products, everything from new feature films released theatrically with traditional windowing to original series. How's the market taken this, this new strategy? How are they, uh, how are they dealing with it? I think folks are really taking it in a looking at it in a positive light. I, I think that you know we've made deals, we've made all kinds of different deals. We've made deals for local originals. We did an amazing deal with the Nine Network, Australia to do Lux Listings, um, Sydney, which is our you know reality uh, docu soap um, real estate show, uh, big show on Prime Video. And Nine bought the, uh, bought the show and aired it right after The Block, right, which is their biggest reality show, big local Australian, also real estate, you know, sort of a development show. So that, that show uh, was the lead out of The Block. We couldn't have had a better spot for our show. And I think they were really happy with it. It was good for us. Like, that's a model that we're looking to replicate. So demand for local originals is actually super high. We really think there's an opportunity there. Uh, we have not had a chance to take out as many of our big original series. We're working on kind of a pathway to that. But our, we have been able to take out our big Amazon original films, our Amazon original movies. Um, and those are playing, you know, we've made deals with big free-to-air broadcasters all around the world. We're having interest there. So I would watch this space. You're going to see a lot of our Amazon original movies and series airing on big free-to-air networks. Like that's, there's an obvious synergy there for both sides. I think those products can work for both the free-to-air broadcaster and to support viewership on Prime. So we'll see that, that's coming. And the, the, the response from other SVOD services, how's, how's that been? We definitely are getting interest from, I mean, we've had interest from even the most unlikely partners. Like I won't say their name because they didn't tell me I could say their name, but everybody has come to us and has been interested. Now, what kind of deals we might be able to do is, uh, that's a different question, you know? So, um, but, you know, our windowing allows us to do those kinds of deals if we want to do them. And what, what do the potential buyers request? Do they want data about how the show performed on Prime Video? And are you happy to give that to them to help facilitate a sale? Well, there's two different kinds of data, right? There's data that's sort of publicly available. And publicly available data, we're happy to facilitate and help uh, share. We have you know, internal Amazon proprietary data we're super careful about sharing. Um, and part of that is that we have, again, being super customer focused, we think that data is very confidential to our customers. We really don't want to be sharing that around. What are your thoughts on the idea that there's a bit of a revival in the idea of content licensing, particularly amongst the US companies that for the last four years or more have 
have kept that content within their wall gardens. What do you, what do you think of the notion that there's a, a revival of, in, in the content licensing business, and if so, why? I think the future of the content, or the near future of the content licensing business is very much on the upswing. It's very positive trends right now. And I think the reason we're seeing that is different for the different services and the different platforms. Some of these platforms are, uh, they need the cash, so they're outselling. I think our view is, is really driven by our customer obsession. Like we are focused on making sure that our customers can see and find the product that we've essentially, that they've helped finance. So if they can find it, for example, on TF1, uh, instead of on Prime Video, it's going to have our branding on it. They're going to know it's an Amazon original movie. But if they find it there, that's great because then they'll know that they can get it also on Prime Video. The Prime Video is generating all this amazing content. So our, you know, our view is, is probably less financial and more strategic. But we know for sure that you know, some of these guys really, I mean, you read about it in the press all the time, you know, that there's significant financial pressures, pressures on stock price. Um, our view is different. Our view is really very much about strategy and about kind of being customer obsessed. And I think similarly, you know, the Netflix guys are also customer obsessed and they just took the other turn of it, right? Which is they feel that they're, they're not selling. Maybe they will at some point. I don't know that my suspicion is they might not. They might never sell. But I think their view is that their brand equity is in things that were built for Netflix live only in Netflix. That's where they live. You know, we took a different viewpoint, um, but I think it's they're both consistent in their own way. They're both true. They're both strategic viewpoints as opposed to being kind of super financially driven. With the buyer, the buying community around the world, do you think after four years of not being able to get as much U.S. content as they perhaps wanted to, because of these strategic D to C kind of decisions. Uh, had they perhaps moved on and found content from other markets? You know, there's lots of talk about Korean or French or other shows that are doing well and, and you know, is yeah. US product as in demand around the world? I, I think quality product is in demand. And I think that generally that had been in the past was the domain of American, you know, producer distributors. I don't think that's as true now. I think we see that with Korean content for sure. They're making amazing shows. We saw it with Turkish content, you know, five to 10 years ago as that exploded onto the scene. And I think we'll always see flight to quality. Like I think that's for sure the case. And American content coming back into the market, it's gonna have bigger budgets, it's gonna have bigger cast. Probably there'll be more demand for it than, you know, there'll continue to be high demand for it. Uh, I do think that the market's very different than it was. I think there's probably two big trends that have changed the way the demand is working. So part of that is all of the streaming options have a lot have broadened the appetite for foreign content in lots of different contexts, especially in the US you see it. That broadening has opened those lots of doors and you see it really around just being able to choose the language. You can watch anything on, on kind of almost any streaming service. You can watch it in your native language easily by just changing the subtitles. So it's super easy to select. And so that I think has opened up a door to a much broader range of high quality content. And that's gonna be driven by great, you know, really probably mostly writer producers, right? Who are making, you know, Dark in Germany is a good example, right? It's traveled everywhere. It's a really good show. 
Uh, that market, when you know, 15 years ago, when I was doing a different kind of job, we would have struggled to sell that job, sell that show. We would have brought that show to buyers and said, please, you watch it, it's fantastic. And we would have struggled to sell it. But now I think everybody's, the, the consumer's appetite is much broader, much, they're, they're open to seeing shows from different parts of the world. The second thing I would say is that, and we're seeing this really, really clearly, is local product, premium local product, is really hard to get and is in very, very high demand. And I'm sure that, I, you know, I don't follow it as closely, but I'm sure Netflix's local shows are very powerful in their home markets. We're seeing it with our product, our local programming that's made for home markets is often our highest performing programming. There's significant demand in those home markets and in, in free-to-air off network. So that channel is... I don't want to say replacing U.S. product, but it is a, there's there is a huge demand for that product, which probably that product wasn't really being made very much even five, six, seven years ago. Now that 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 broadening of appetite amongst the international buyers for new kinds of shows from non-traditional suppliers, if you like, that's obviously happening in the states as well. We're now seeing some of the even the broadcast networks saying that we're not going to make our own dramas anymore, we're just going to buy them in from the international market, Australian, yes. UK, Canadian. What do you make of that, that, that change? I mean, this is more, more wind behind the sails of content licensing, right? Yeah, I think for sure. I think that, uh, and that's where, you know, for example, you know, I think English language produced local originals, premium local originals, those could travel into the US and they could travel in surprising places. You know, they, there will be opportunities for those shows and those films that people didn't anticipate. Now, a lot of that is caused by reduced content acquisitions budgets. Acquisitions is always cheaper than production. So if you can sub replace a uh, production slot with an acquisition slot and get similar ratings, it's super efficient. So I think there's always that opportunity to kind of arbitrage that slot. And is it worth it to spend the money to do the production or is it better to do the acquisition? And if you can, if you can really drive a big delta between the performance and monetize the performance between kind of acquisitions level primetime performance and originals performance, it's worth it to spend the money. But that equation isn't quite as clear as it maybe was a few years ago particularly in today's advertising environment. I mean, we've had a global downturn in advertising. That's been pressurizing everybody in the ad-supported space. I think that's cyclical. I think that'll turn around, but right now it's still, it's still true. That, that downturn you talk about, is that something else that's pushing people uh, or driving the content licensing market? People 100%, yeah. I mean, our, the downturn in, in ad sales, and we've seen this, I mean, I've been in the business long enough to see it multiple times, where you see the, the cyclical downturn in ad sales, acquisitions go up, original production comes down as it gets too expensive relative to the monetization. So we're in a phase of that right now, and it's good for licensors, yeah. Cool, and obviously factor in that inflationary pressures on you know, cast and crew and, and production itself, and that's another factor that's going to drive up. Absolutely, 100%. You know, as production gets more expensive relative to audience delivery, right? The audience delivery is going to be what it's going to be, and it's, it's not capped, but it's, in some ways it is. It's not, it's not, there's sort of a ceiling on how much you can deliver in terms of a rating, and there's always the breakout hit that uncaps the cap, 
But in general, when you're looking at the value of your prime time, there's a there's an expected value there, and that's forecast well in advance. Those those ad sales guys are really good. The you know the the financial planners at the networks they know how much monetization they're going to get, and when they look at it and go, okay, if I can get that same monetization for a third of the price or a quarter of the price, it's better to do acquisitions and good for content licensing. Uh, and just lastly, how's the growth of fast impacting the market for content licensing. Oh, fast is is really, I think, one of the most interesting areas. Uh, we are very, very aggressive in that space right now. We're hoping that we're going to see growth in the international markets the same way we've seen it in the U.S. We've got by the end of this calendar year, we're hoping to have about 20 fast channels in play in the United States. The growth in that space, in terms of revenue, it's doing the same thing that Avod did a few years ago. You know, Avod was a rocket ship, and it was driven by sort of generally available thirty-dollar CPMs in the U.S. And that, when 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 those Avod services were able to monetize at that kind of level, they could buy good content. And when they had good content, the audience came. So it was a virtuous circle for sure, where. You know, higher CPM gave more monetization, which allowed them to buy better content, which allowed them to grow audience, which allowed them to buy better content, and you just watched it go like that. We're seeing the same thing with with fast channels, and there's there's kind of two different ways to look at fast. One is these single single IP networks, which work incredibly well, shockingly, like a channel of just one show. Uh, they it works shockingly, shockingly well. But also program networks that, and we're doing both. We're doing both program networks as well as uh, single IP networks. The challenge for overseas is the same. It's it's we don't really have that digital thirty dollars CPM right now, and so that that being able to sell out all your advertising at premium rates in overseas markets right now is a real challenge. That's why the AVOD market is underdeveloped. Like you know, if Pluto and Freevee can be successful in developing that market. I think it's good for everybody, and we'll see those. We'll see. We'll see that business take off. And when it does take off, if it does what happened in the U.S., will be incredible. Frank Dolger is a six-time Primetime Emmy Award winner whose credits include Game of Thrones, John Adams, and Rome for HBO, and who joined forces with Germany's Beta Film and ZDF Studios to launch Intaglio Films four years ago. The company was behind ecological thriller The Swarm for ZDF, France Television, Rive Fiction, Viaplay, Hulu Japan, Orphan, SRF, and the series has been picked up by a string of others around the world. Many of the same partners have joined together on Intaglio's latest series, Concordia, another thriller, but this time set in a near-future utopia where artificial intelligence, rather than being a malevolent force, actually aids social cohesion. That is, until the system's hacked and the community experiences its first-ever murder. Concordia had its premiere at MIPCOM this week and Dolger spoke with me in Cannes about how the series was conceived prior to this year's AI hype and why, while he sympathises with those in Hollywood striking over its use, he believes it could ultimately be a positive for the industry. Hi, my name is Frank Dolger. Um, I'm here today to talk about Concordia and other projects I'm working on for Italio Films. I had the great luxury of starting working with HBO very early on in my career and for almost 30 years I did projects across the board for HBO. Um, most notably, I would say, Conspiracy, John Adams, Rome, Game of Thrones. After finishing Game of Thrones, I was very lucky to be offered 
uh, a job starting in Calio Films, which is a co-venture between ZDF Enterprises, now ZDF Studios, and Beta Films to produce uh, high-quality English-language projects out of Europe. And the first project that you came out with was uh, was The Swarm. Yes. Uh, let's just go back a little bit in, in time and talk about The Swarm and, and how that evolved, you know, and why that was the right project to, to launch the company. The first project I was offered when we started Intaglio was The Swarm, which is a very well-known German novel by Frank Schetzing. It had an interesting development history. It had been published, I believe, in 2004. The rights were bought instantly, and for almost 16 years they tried to develop it as a feature film without success. I read the novel and I understood instantly why it was, would have a difficult trajectory as a feature film, because it's a 900-page novel filled with interesting characters, scientific investigations, mysteries. But if you reduce it to 90 minutes, you end up making a disaster movie. And I really wanted to make a monster movie. I wanted to make a movie in which a group of young scientists realize that there is an evil force out there. And of course, like a lot of really good monster movies, at the end you discover that the evil force is actually us. And that the alien life force, the creature, is acting in self-defense to protect itself and all the creatures it represents from extinction. Um, at the hands of what we have done to the oceans. And, um, you know, a, a big international co-production, that series, um, and you've taken many of those production partners together into your, your latest project. Yes, you know, it's interesting. When I first started in Tadio, one of my con concerns was how do you speak to the different needs, uh, the different requirements, the taste of the various partners we were putting together. It's very interesting when I was working with HBO or occasionally with HBO or the BBC, there was pretty much one editorial voice. On The Swarm, there were five partners, uh, France Television, ZDF, Rai, Hulu Japan, and Viaplay. Some of those same partners came back with Concordia, and they're going with us again on a third project. And what I said to everybody were two things, one of which is I wanted international projects to be defined by the subject matter. I didn't want to have a situation where we were simply changing the nationality or the locations to make the project international. They had to be subjects that demanded an international cast and international um, topics that were international in their very nature. But I also said that there's going to be no way to navigate among all of your different points of view, your different requirements, and then the editorial point of view had to rest with me and the other producers. And they were very trusting. I think they realized from their own experience that to join forces, to come up with a project that really served all of their needs, they had to find a way to navigate along with us. So they were very trusting and gave us the editorial control we needed. We were, of course, incredibly deferential, as one always is to one's partners. But it worked out well enough that they came back for a second, and I think they're coming back for a third time as well. Tell us about Concord. I don't want to give too much away, but I can tell you that there were two ideas that came together when we were thinking about Concordia. I've always been fascinated by utopian communities. At times of social unrest, they tend to spring up. The communities which people step back and say, there must be a new way to create towns or villages which we can really address the needs of all of our citizens better. Famous examples, of course, are Siemens in Germany, Michelin in France, uh, Cadbury, Bourneville in the UK, Hershey, Pennsylvania. And then I was thinking, if you were going to have a utopian community in the 21st century, what would that be? How would you address all the issues that are tearing society apart? 
So that was the first idea, to see what we could do, what we could imagine as a new utopian community. The other thing I was fascinated by was a, doc was a conversation I had with my doctor about four years ago, and he was talking about this whole new wave of technology which was being invented to track people's health. And he said to me something really intriguing. He said, you know, I think of AI and all of these advanced as a new guardian angel. When you think of most societies and cultures, it's this idea there's a guardian angel, something that keeps us all safe. And it was really curious that he was imagining this sort of technology as a guardian angel. And I thought that's so different from what I was always thinking about it, which is this dark dystopian force. So the idea was, could you take this utopian community and could you build it around this benign guardian angel-like system of surveillance of AI to create this new community? So those were the two ideas that gave birth to Concordia. The thing that was interesting to me is every time I sent it out to writers um, who were coming in to do later episodes, to directors, other producers, even actors, their first instinct was, but this is dystopian. They were so surprised that actually we were celebrating this community built through AI. Now, of course, there's a dark secret, there's a thriller aspect to it, but it really was my interest in subverting the genre to go in and seeing there's a new way to think about AI, and is AI in itself a force for good or evil? I mean, you were developing the series presumably prior to the start of 2023, and it's really been in 2023 that ChatGPT and, and the whole debate around AI has really taken off, and very much so obviously at the heart of the US writers' strike. So in terms of is it good or is it evil, yes. and, and your kind of perspective on it, has that changed over the course of developing the series and over the course of the discussions which have taken place this year? You know, it's interesting, when we started the project four years ago, no one was really talking about AI. It was out there, it had been dealt with a little bit, but I don't think it was a topic of conversation that it became. So we were lucky that actually we had a project that had that debate. Because the central question in Concordia is, it's what people do with the system. It's not what the system does itself. So I came away thinking that actually, if properly used, this could be an enormous benefit. I mean, we live with it all the time. Everything, um, this whole idea that we have any privacy, any safety at all, I think is being chipped away. So why not embrace this, face it? And is there a way, what we were exploring is how can you take this AI and use it to give you actually more privacy? Is there a way that you can be in a community where firewalls are built, where people, you can be on camera, but people can never access that footage? You know? So I felt that we tried to figure out everything we could to say, all right, this is what people think about it, but is there another way of looking at it? And again, it was I, one of the reasons um, we had to move so quickly in post-production is that because suddenly everybody realized that we had a project uh, at the heart of it, which is very much the debate going on right now. And so what's the reaction been like? Because, uh, and, and particularly, I guess, now that you're primarily working out of, of Europe, when you see what's been going on back in the United States and the fact that writers and I'm guessing, you know, many of your sort of former colleagues have, have actually been on strike on this issue. How, how are they responding to, to you and, and to the, the perspective that you're taking? So all of my friends uh, in the Writers Guild and the Screen Actors Guild, I'm a member of the Writers Guild myself. Um, it's something that everybody realizes needed to be talked about. No one's quite sure what the solution is. No one's quite sure what the answer is. But they just felt this is the time to talk about it. And I think that 
they're really intrigued that we're tackling this in quite a different way. But again, I think that it's trying to get people to understand this is here, it's not going to go away, and how do we use it to our benefits? How do writers use it to their benefit? Is there any way that actually producers, actors, directors can use it to their benefit? So I think it's become very heated and very acrimonious. And my hope is that people will take a step back and start asking different questions. It's, as I said, there are a lot of very positive aspects of it. So it's interesting to be right in the middle of this debate right now. What about the, the broader TV landscape and the way that it's changed in the past few years? Obviously, we've had the boom in streaming that took place during COVID, post-COVID, and hopefully continuing in, in that direction. However, there's been a, a, a pivot in the streamers. Uh, you know, Netflix has cut back on spending, Amazon too, to some degree. The US streamers have had to focus on their bottom lines and, yes. and, and rein in spending as well. Um, it's interesting that as far as Concordia is concerned and the Swarm, Viaplay is not one of the partners that's, that's now involved in this latest project and they've obviously had to restructure because partly of the overspend on, on content, you know, that, that's had a direct effect I'm guessing on, on Concordia to, to a degree and, you know, what's the kind of broader impact that you're seeing across the business? Well, I think, you know, much to the credit of my partners at Beta Films and Zadiev Studios, their business plan was very different. Their business plan was to find projects, bring in a handful of partners, sell as few territories as possible, provide a deficit, end up owning the project, and then sell it piecemeal. And it's been really, it was very prescient because again, we are not held hostage by any one company. I have so many friends who have projects who are all the offices that are being shut down, particularly local offices, and suddenly projects that were just about to start vanished overnight. So the business model has always been to find just a few partners that believe in the project, that want to work with us, and as people, certain companies drop out, other ones have stepped in. And I think there's also interesting development right now is, certainly when we started the Swarm, it was very clear that a lot of people wouldn't come close to it unless they could have all rights. And I think that's much more negotiable. We're getting offers, we're getting inquiries on Concordia and the Netflix project doing good. Uh, from some of the companies, broadcaster streamers, I thought would never be interested because certain territories are gone. So again, I can't take any credit for this, but I'm very pleased that I'm working for a group of partners that saw this landscape changing, and I think they're ideally positioned to take advantage of it going forward. Christian Wickander became global head of scripted at international production giant Banerjee earlier this year, taking over from Lars Blomgren and following a stint helming originals for HBO Max Europe in the Nordics. The former head of drama at Swedish public broadcaster SVT now oversees the output of more than 60 scripted labels within Banerjee, some of whose titles include Marie Antoinette, Peaky Blinders and Black Mirror. Wakanda was in Cannes on the Banerjee stand for the first time this week and spoke to me there about his priorities, how cutbacks among streamers is impacting the marketplace, why windowing is back in fashion and the potential implications of artificial intelligence. My name is Christian Wikander. I'm a global head of scripted at Banerjee uh, and I joined uh, this May uh, and uh, so fairly new into this new role. And um, tell us what that role encompasses and the extent of your remit. 
Oh wow. Um, so um, so on the script side, Banerjee has 60 plus labels in 21 territories. The output last year uh, was 130 uh, launches. Out of 70% actually was non-English. Uh, both numbers for me was a bit of a surprise. Uh, and and um, so that's that's the kind of um, the, the, the group perspective of scripted. My remit in that is, I say in very short, I would say support. It is about helping the producers in any way we can uh, on the center scripted team to broaden their footprint, to maybe acquire an IP that they're looking for, help them sign a uh, first look deal or bring in this fantastic creator. Um, so that's, that, is the, that is the main part of the role. It's also about connecting the dots, meaning we are a big group across, and how can, how can label A work together with able, label B, and, and we can connect them. Here is, here is a need, here is someone's competence, Let, let's bring them together. So we do a lot of that, and it can be on person-to-person -person level, it can be on, on group level, bringing all of them together and discussing and sharing. Tell us about some of the shows that are now on your slate, I suppose, as you arrived into the company, and then perhaps tell us about some of the ones that you're most excited about developing. So, um, current now uh, on, on, on series that we uh, are about to launch, uh, I would say Fallen, uh, a Swedish series with, with uh, the creator of, of um, The Bridge, Brun, uh, Camille Algren, meeting Sofia Elin, so, Saga Nolén uh, from The Bridge, and they are doing this uh, Fallen, uh, coming from Filmdans. That's one. Uh, I would say uh, Three Little Birds, uh, which is Tiger Aspect for ITV, uh, with Lenny Henry, uh, that's coming also now. And, um, and so is This Town, uh, Stephen Knight's new project together with Kudos. Uh, about uh, the, the ska music of Birmingham. Uh, it's Murder in Hanko from, from Finland, uh, and the in Finland. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot. Uh, uh, so, but th that is a fairly good, um, different uh, type of titles that we're coming with. And um, how have you seen the market change, obviously arriving at the company in May, a year to 18 months after we've had this kind of great Netflix correction that people have talked about. It's a very different marketplace now to what it was during the, the, the sort of uh, COVID boom of streaming and the overproduction kind of period which, yeah. which preceded yeah. that. Yeah. So how's the landscape for you now and uh, you know, what are the challenges that you face? So um, in, in today's market, compared to what we're coming from, I would say that the big shift is about that uh, streamers no longer looking for global rights. So they, uh, um, again, are more acquiring part of, of, of the rights or the territories, which means for us an opportunity because we get to, to control parts of the rights going forward. But the challenge with that is also to then we need to find the co-finance side. Uh, so that's, that's something that has shifted. Uh, for us, that means, as I said, an opportunity, but uh, as a group, we can definitely thrive upon that we are many different labels. We can bring co-productions together, we can share and support each other. 
so that's that's something. I, I think that uh, to to keep keep the focus on creativity, bringing in um, the fantastic um, creators like Pukepsi uh, in Spain, uh, Alexia de Iglesias that done 30 coins, uh, or Grenlandia that do both feature and and uh, the the law according to Lydia Poet for Netflix, um, and just now. Um, James Norton and uh, Kitty Kaletsky on, on Rabbit Hole is example of, of at this time it's, it's even more important to have the best creators and offer a safe haven in a way for, for them to come on board and, and work. So, so I, I would say that it's not, that's not a big shift but it's really a, a, a still a very big focus. And, and to that we also have the scripted fund so we can help the, the creators and the labels to develop uh, um, and, and foster an, uh, a project that really has a place in the market and help them expand their footprint. As a Swede, as someone who was responsible for the, the kind of Nordic noir kind of trend that we've seen and, and the growth in the whole scripted space to, to some degree as a result of that trend. The contraction that we've seen, however, has claimed a, a Swedish company in the shape of Viaplay. Uh, you don't need to talk specifically about that, that business, but I'm just, just wondering, you know, how illustrative that story is of overproduction and, you know, have we reached an inflection point now where there's a greater degree of sort of realism, I guess, entering the marketplace in terms of spending in, in amongst a, a difficult kind of economic period as well? I, I, um, I definitely uh, think in, in today's market that there is a, a more careful, more risk-averse market. Um, streamers are moving more towards the middle. And, and each title needs to exist on its own merits. Um, and, uh, and, and, and buyers, more and more buyers are looking for the mainstream. Um, genre is again at play. So, so, so that has, I would say, changed if you compare to just a couple of years ago where the, 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 the appetite for all kinds of different stories was more available and more present uh, in, in, in the ask. And we also have seen, we've seen streamers leaving, complete, completely backing out of, of, of territories, uh, and which I don't think no one of us really saw coming a couple of years ago, even if we, I think, all were aware of that this volume was very high, uh, but it would go so far that it actually some territories were left behind. Uh, and, and again, that is a reminder about that, that streamers and local linear uh, broadcasting really needs to, to work and are important in every market uh, parallel to each other. What about the other hot topic that's been dominating discussion within the industry over the, the past sort of year, AI? Um, you know, what are your thoughts on that and the potential impact it, it may have on the business? So. Um, the word on everyone's lips today is AI, and uh, and I think uh, it's it's here to stay, and I think it needs to be human-led. For me, it's, it's like it is a tool, and and as a tool, we need to 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 learn about it and and also how we can work with it, and in in what situation it's good and what situation it's not. I see um, 
at the end of the table in the writer's room there is humans that are telling a story. Maybe AI is on one of the chairs being available as a tool, as I said. That's, that's how I see um, AI in a, in a, from a creative standpoint. Adding to that, I think AI is kind of put together as a, as a mirror of what have, has happened up to now, which means that AI is not driving or evolving uh, a way of telling a story. I don't, I don't think that. I think that it still is reproducing white men in middle-aged uh, instead of diversity and, and because it's based upon how things has been told in the years. So I think that's also one thing to have, be very aware of. And I, I, but I also definitely see AI being part of the technical development when it comes to post and production and all that, of course. And um, I'm just thinking in terms of you know, the other kind of challenges and opportunities and dynamics that you see sort of shaping the industry over the, the coming 12 months as well. I mean, it's interesting that whilst we've seen the contraction in, in, in streaming and we've seen the US studios bringing down their budgets, but they're also returning to the licensing business as well. And, and we've even seen one of the leading streamers, Amazon, licensing out their originals. In terms of the, the sort of the sales marketplace and the distribution marketplace, it seems that's kind of opening up again. Is that how you see it? I know it's beyond the creatives kind of remit in some senses, but it's also for, from a funding point of view, it must be kind of a, an interesting development. Yeah, I mean, well, of course, uh, distribution-wise, um, we, we, of course, have a very close collaboration with Vanity Rights and Cathy Payne and Simon Cox and, and, and their work. And, and it, going back to what I said before about that uh, streamers no longer acquiring all the rights, which means windowing is back, which means licensing and, and funding from distribution and, and pre-sales and all that is definitely back big time. So, so uh, um, it's, it seems like everything is going in a circle, circle back to something that many of the producers uh, of today are familiar with. Uh, and, uh, and, and with that comes also the opportunity to, to, set, to put together your financing plan in the best optimal way. And creatively, what are the things that you're most excited about in the sort of coming 12 months? What are the opportunities there? You talk, you talk a little bit about things becoming a little bit more mainstream perhaps, a little bit of risk aversion, maybe less diversity, less creativity in projects. I mean, how do you see the creative story unfolding? I think um, we, we, are, we are in a time where um, buyers are less interested in taking risks. So, which means that our slates needs to be agile and, and, and being able to follow that and offer stories that fits into that need. But I also think it's about looking in the other corner where no one else is looking at the moment. Um, and I, so I think that's also going to be uh, a bit of the puzzle the upcoming years. You know, when we talk about mainstream, when we talk about genres, we are also assuming something that will come on the service in 24 months at the earliest point. So we are, so anything, any discussion around what will happen is already by now 24 months. It's, it's so so strange with this this part of the business, the scripted business that we try to 
to foresee the future. Uh, but the future for storytelling and engaging themes and, and characters, that's here to stay. But I think we're going to see even more different sides of formats. I think, I think the feature is, is, is again on the rise. Uh, so uh, yeah, lots of great stuff happening. European production studio Asatcha Media Group was co-founded three years ago by former Zodiac Media and Endemol Shine execs Gaspar de Chavanec, Marina Williams and Marc-Antoine Delouin. The fast-growing company now comprises eight labels across France, Italy and the UK, including Death in Paradise Prodco Red Planet Pictures, Send de Ménage and En Famille Maker Cabo Family and Mare Fiori Outfit Pico Media. The company was at MIPCOM in Cannes this week with new titles La Storia and The Continental Method and Williams spoke with Nico Franks about these, the trends she sees shaping the marketplace and where Asatcha's headed next. Thanks for joining us, Marina. So Asatcha, it's a very well established but a relatively young company still. So you won't have been to too many MIPCOMs under that banner. Uh, so what are your, what, how are you kind of preparing for this year's market? You're absolutely right. Asasha is a very new company, even though three of us, the founders of the business, Gaspar de Chivignac, Marc-Antoine de Luin, and me, have been in the industry for many years. We are also referred to as uh, one of the fastest growing companies because we now have eight companies in our group across three key West European markets, uh, UK, France, and Italy. And quite a few achievements, I would say, have been made and will reflect also in our meetings at MIPCOM this year. Um, over the last several years, as you probably know, we are famous for some of the well-established long-running franchises, such as Death in Paradise in, uh, and Beyond Paradise in UK, uh, Marifori in Italy, uh, M6 shows Sander Minaj and Famille in France. So these were the brands which were kind of already established apart from Beyond Paradise when we acquired the assets. And over the last three years, we focused our companies to obviously expand in the variety of directions. Mm, so first of all, you know, we expanded all from linear TV also to premium and uh, S-word broadcasters. And we also facilitated co-productions uh, within the group, uh, which probably worth noting one of the projects, which is called La Storia, and uh, it will be heavily promoted at MIPCOM by our distribution partner, Better Film. La Storia is uh, one of the biggest budget shows based in Italy. It's adaptation of a very famous uh, book in Italy by Elisa Maranzi. And this uh, series are in production right now and will be finishing at the end of the year. So obviously fully available to the international clients. Uh, produced by Pico Media and Roberta Sessa, our partner and CEO of Pico Media. He's also managed to secure the top cast, a uh, very famous uh, Italian cast. And the series will be produced in Italian language. But as we know these days, language doesn't really mean a barrier. <laughs> Amongst other projects that we are talking about and the meetings we are going to have is indeed 
example of a co-production uh, show such as Continental Method. And this one is an interesting one because we have a small team in Asashar Center uh, in the headquarters. And actually, I lead this team where we source projects also from third-party talent, whether it's writers or producers, and we see if they can fit in with the expertise and the trends of the markets. So Continental Method was picked up by us from Deadpan, uh, which is a Irish studio. And we really, I love the story. <laughs> and um, brought it to Stefan Marti, our partner and CEO of Talia Images, which is part of Cabo family. It's one of the French companies uh, owned by a social media group. And Stefan immediately been, you know, creative and seen opportunity. He said, well, that's really something that's within our genre. It's a, it's a comedy slash thriller. It's a, it's a spy story. It's fun. It's very unusual. And from then on, you know, the process started. We attached great writers. So we are in pre-selling mode because these days, you know, quite often you are not dependent just on one commissioner. You have to take the project to several clients at once. So we are collaborating with Red Arrow and they will be discussing with a variety of clients. Uh, we are building the strategy together on uh, packaging, financing of the series. It's interesting, isn't it? Because international co-productions obviously haven't gone away over the past few years, but it seems like recently they've really come back to the fore of, of people's um, minds because of the challenges, I guess, the streamers are facing and, and not necessarily fully commissioning as many shows as they were. So is this, you know, a few years ago, would this have been a, a kind of international streamer commission but now given the the change in the in the market you're going back to that kind of yeah pre-selling strategy actually actually uh, for us it's um luckily you know we don't need to readjust our strategy because we are quite young and when we were launching asasha what was clear to us that we wanted as founders to create a very sustainable model of our business which is based on creating profitable shows, not only for ourselves, but for our clients. Because we believe that only that way, you know, there will be continuation and uh, uh, growth of the, both of the shows, you know, but also of the company. You know, uh, three years ago, also, of course, the streamers were in the mood of growing their subscribers. So there was a lot of uh, money pouring in. There was more uh, focus on the growth of subs rather than profitability, which normally we understood it's going to change. <laughs> so that picture was clear to us. So we really, you know, looking at the portfolio of our company and the way we selected them, we wanted to have the backbone of the business built on long-running franchises. So if you look across our group, whether it's UK, Italy or France, we have this very sustainable brands such as, you know, Death in Paradise, uh, Marie Fauré, Saint-Dominage en Famille in France, from where we can build either in spin-offs, adaptations, because we own IP uh, and that's our strategy as well, you know, to, to, to own our destiny, uh, especially when we create such a huge loyalty of viewers as we've done. And I think that strategy is paying off because some of these bigger franchises, they did require packaging already then, you know, 
so it's not new for us to come out to the markets now <laughs> and basically building upon those relationships which we already have, but making projects bigger, more exciting. And of course, we still have in the portfolio and the development some of the projects which could land just, you know, for a streamer, but it has to be a diverse model across the group. <clears throat> and how does that strategy impact the conversations you have with streamers and, and what they're looking for? You know, uh, in- interesting uh, to, to mention to you also maybe uh, that in variety of markets, whether it's UK or Italy or France, of course, the models are slightly different on English and non-English. But the trend, I think, is similar where streamers are becoming more open to share the windows and and also go after specific territory, but not the world. So Let's say La Storia, which I mentioned to you, you know, okay, this is more like a broadcaster project. But Mari Fuori originally launched on Rai. And when, you know, a huge success picked up, Netflix acquired, you know, the shows. And now it's becoming the show which is based on three legs, you know, like Rai, Rai Play and Netflix. We're working on a co-production in Spain at the moment where Amazon is looking about taking only Amazon Spanish S-word rights. So that leaves a lot of options open, you know, for a linear broadcaster in Spain, a distributor outside and potentially, you know, big pre-sale, depending whether editorial line takes you to another cross-border territory. So, yeah, more flexibility. More flexibility, yes. And I've heard about some cases in some countries, I think Finland, where the streamers are almost so flexible that the streamers are willing to work with one another. But I don't know if that's going to be a replicable model in other markets. Have you seen any other examples of... Actually, we have, we, have one, we have one example, which in non-scripted space in that particular situation... Because we produced a show called Don't Pick Up the Phone on Netflix. And and that show was originated by WAG, our factual company here in UK. An original pitch uh, was with, with um, you know, Paramount Plus and Channel 5. And then we wanted to make the show bigger. And Netflix was interested as well. So in the end, we ended up doing co-production where Paramount has taken UK rights while Netflix took US and the rest of the world. Interesting experience to streamers, to different marketing strategies. Same show. (laughs) Different title, by the way. That was interesting experience for us. And how is it impacting your strategy in terms of growing the portfolio of companies within Asasha? So we have a clear strategy for our expansion, I would say, because as you noted, we are quite young. You know, we feel especially on this cross-country, cross-border a packaging and also interest in you know bigger co-production projects it's it's good to have presence in some other key markets in uh, Europe uh, we are looking at uh, Spain and Germany and also uh, some of the bigger markets of central and eastern Europe we believe that middle east is presenting a very interesting opportunity uh, we have expertise, um, you know, Marc-Antoine de Luin, my partner, and me, we, we, we both worked in the region for, for many years. And in fact, we are about to distribute the show 
which has been produced, I would say it's the first show where East meets West and it's of really top quality. It's called Quarantina and it's an amazing story based out of Beirut. So even though it's like 50% Arabic, 50% English, produced by our French production team with the Greek service providers. So it's it's incredible models, you know, how you have to work these days, where we basically recreated Beirut in Athens. So it's a eight-episode show, and now in final, really final edits, and we'll be marketing this series very soon. It's obviously fascinating because we're seeing in other areas of the media and entertainment and most notably sport, the Middle East, having a huge impact in, in terms of its kind of financial clout. Do you see the same happening in TV maybe in the, in the coming years and, and specifically like developments like Neom in Saudi Arabia, which I think they're, they're doing a bit of a film and TV push as well? Well, de- definitely. Actually, this the, this project we also worked with uh, with a, with a local partner on. But you know, it's it's obvious following you know the viewers. I think all over the world the same. We people are the same, right? We we share emotions. We share our local histories. So I think to drive the growth of local platforms in the Middle East, you know, whether it's Shahed or Stars Play or you know bigger platforms who enter the market, they need local content. You can't just of you know international content if you want to grow your subscribers we we've seen the impact of that with a show called Rashash. actually it was developed uh, by Tony Jordan our partner and uh, founder of Red Planet Pictures because Tony is quite quite amazing he really has expertise of working with international script writing teams and he set up this series uh, it's a story I think it was probably the, the first story which portrayed the deserts of Saudi Arabia and that background of a thriller crime story based on a true criminal with amazing local star and it gave growth to the subscribers of Shahed platform from what I've seen so so, you know, when you see that, that it's not just a show without impact, but actually people come and subscribe to see your show, that gives you a real pleasure. And do you see any developments in the sense of Middle Eastern companies and some of those really, really rich states, you know, potentially buying TV and film companies? Interesting question. Uh, well, we've seen, we've seen, you know, being right, and we've seen uh, what happened before with Miramax. I don't know. I can't really see maybe that much of those deals. I think they will focus on their local expansion. That that's kind of my feeling for the time being. But of course, you know, all of these companies. We've seen the Koreans. We've seen the Chinese. You know. <laughs> Uh, people do have ambitions to to own big uh, studio product, etc. But the way the local businesses are growing, it looks to me that focus is, I can't comment obviously on behalf of major players there, but to me it looks like focus is on local actually today. And on the kind of other end of the scale, uh, financially, we're seeing so many parts of the TV industry having a really, really tough time due to the factors like cost of living crises, the ongoing labor disputes in the US uh, that's having knock-on effects in other markets. What are you seeing from your 
kind of vantage point across lots of different countries of of the health of the various industries and and what it's going to be like in 2024 because i think 2023 has been really 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 tough look we, we obviously you know we we cannot ignore the economic and environment uh, around around us and and i can see i've been the edinburgh convention you know in in uh, august and a lot of freelancers from what i've seen in the industry are, are suffering and it's not easy however maybe we are in a lucky spot <laughs> or maybe it's our strategy uh, but actually a lot of our business is uh, secured for 2024 thanks to this uh, loyalty of the viewers for the shows that we have created whether it's scripted or non-scripted i would say so that gives us very good visibility uh, from where we are today and we are excited about that also we are very not just young company but we are very agile company we have a very very small uh center you know so we don't have layers and layers of management we don't have you know the situation where we need to to cut costs you know and and, and look for reductions because um, all our businesses are very well structured and managed and quite concise. So I would say we are really optimistic the way we are structured to go into this, uh, you know, environment. And as I say, sometimes in the midst of the crisis, you have even more opportunities. And some of your fellow production distribution companies are up for sale. And so we're, we're looking at potential, you know, more consolidation coming. Uh, what do you think the, the impact of that will be um, as maybe we see um, all three media, um, for example, which is up for sale, get bought by a, by another arrival. I don't think it actually has a, a lot of impact on us because um, you know, our, it, in the core of our business is our own creativity. So we we really nourish our talent and we support them as much as we can. Not only, you know, with, let's say, sourcing some of the money for developments so that they can do ambitious projects, because that's what Asasha has done when we acquired the company, we created a development fund so that, uh, you know, our talent on, in our companies can see, okay, we can actually do something bigger, we can do better. We can access not only our local budgets, we, we support them with promotions, with marketing, we we nourish them, you know, talent is at the core. So we are focusing on originals. So, you know, yes, of course, you know, there is consolidation, like all three media will be acquired by TV. But, you know, I think they will be going through a very lengthy integration process, which creates a lot of, um, I think, indecisiveness, a lot of fragility. Uh, when it comes to people and their decisions, we've seen what happened, you know, with restructuring of Warner Brothers Discovery. It's never-ending process. Um, very difficult one, very painful for a lot of people there. So, you know, whilst uh, these bigger competitors will be focusing on this kind of uh, restructuring, it will give us opportunity to move fast, <laughs> to move fast and be in those, uh, you know, niches and those slots uh, of content which we want to fill in and where the need is. Yes. And obviously, Asasha is kind of the the product of all the previous consolidation, given all your management's experience at other distribution companies. Yes, that's true. Today, our model is uh, is agile. As you know, we work with various distributors. So we're actually um, open. We have our pre-sale function within Asasha, but we don't 
distribute finished content yet on a larger scale. Uh, so we are lucky to work with great companies such as BBC Studios and, and Beta and uh, obviously in Italy also it's uh, Raikom and, you know, in France, France Television. So it depends on the structure of the deals. But we are always open-minded about the next steps on the distribution, especially now that our portfolio is growing and we have 80 projects on our development slate and some, you know, really becoming very ripe to go into pitches. And uh, as far as you know, how many of those have been using AI in their development <laughs> Actually, our partner in Italy, uh, one of them, told me that she is about to use AI on one of their uh, sitcoms she's developing. So that will be the first one, I think. <laughs> and yet, do you have any set strategy about your approach? Um, we've seen the BBC recently kind of outlining in writing kind of its approach. Banerjee doing its own unscripted fund for AI. Yeah, I think we, we still have to... Um, learn a little bit more before we set the guidelines you know we're still a young company and it's uh, still i think a little bit untapped world so it would be uh, i think a bit premature to put certain parameters for us about using it but it's not something that we can ignore either so we will stay focused next year Mark Fennessy is the former Australian boss of MTV, Fremantle and Endemol Shine, and two years ago, following Banerjee's acquisition of the latter, set up his own production company called Helium. The firm's first projects include Paramount Plus dramas The Last King of the Cross, already heading into its second season, and upcoming pre-Me Too girl band series Paper Dolls. Fennessy was in Cannes this week, where he spoke with me about both titles, how Helium's also branching out into unscripted as premium drama feels the economic squeeze, and the ripple effects of the US writers' and actors' strikes. Uh, Mark Fennessy, uh, Helium Pictures, um, been uh, in the Australian marketplace, independent producer, um, multimedia megastar. <laughs> You've built up Helium just over the last kind of couple of years. Just tell us a little bit about the um, the background, the journey to this point. Yeah, um, well, we, we've only just turned two years old, so it's kind of been a pretty fast, uh, frenetic pace in that time. Um, so we're into both the sort of scripted and unscripted spaces, um, and we've grown quite quickly from a standing start as a truly independent for the first time again in a long time. Um, obviously, Lasking the Cross, Delighted with how that's gone, um, and Paper Dolls now launching. Um, only uh, it's, it launches at the end of the year in December, December seven. Uh, and on the unscripted side, uh, we have uh, three three projects now: um, one for seven, one for nine, which will both go out next year, and a new one we're about to announce for the ABC. So um, we're we're really busy. It's a it's I'm, I'm I'm proud of where we've where we've got to after just two years. Tell us a bit more about Paper Dolls. Okay, Paper Dolls uh, was inspired by um, the, um, the true story of, of a girl group called Bardo, which came out of um, pop stars uh, in the year 2000. Uh, it's a fictionalized story. Uh, five girls who kind of uh, come out of a singing talent show and have meteoric success, rapid success, and then it all kind of crashes and burns in, in a, over a two year period. Um, it's noisy, it's distinctive, it's authentic, uh, it's a little dark, uh, fantastic music, 
um, and very much of the era, that nod to that 1999-2000 kind of period. It's pre-Me Too, so there's, uh, you know, it's a little bit of an outing of the music business in some respects, um, and, um, and really a fantastic female story um, produced by a, a brilliant and highly talented female creative team. You talk about sort of shining a bit of a spotlight on that era, on that pre-Me Too movement. Yeah, look, I think there's obviously elements of misogyny there. Um, you know, the power plays um, of the times, where the music business was at that stage. I think it's come a long way actually since then. Um, but I think it also shines a spotlight on those kind of singing talent sort of shows as well. I mean, you're talking about five girls that are thrown together, have never met each other before, and they're, they're navigating their own relationships with each other whilst they're kind of fighting an industry that's setting them up to fail. Um, so, you know, they go from strangers to housemates to stars in extremely rapid time. And so, you know, it's a kind of psychological drama in lots of ways, you know, and all, it's also that... Um, that sort of Icarus flying too close to the sun and that lust for fame as well. So uh, it's, a, it's a really compelling series, eight episodes, Paramount Plus, uh, rep, rep, represented, distributed by E1. And we're really excited about it. It's getting, it's getting incredible reaction. In fact, the sales team at E1 are all over me about the music. They're that excited about the music. So it does actually have eight original tracks in the series which will be, there, so there will be a soundtrack release. Um, and they're all buzzing around the stand singing the song, songs, which I'm delighted about, to be honest, but it surprised me a little bit. So it's, a, it's your second Paramount project as well, following on from Last King of the Cross. Um, that's moving on to a, to a second season as well. So just tell us a little bit about that relationship and how those projects that you've got away, those initial ones kind of speak to where you're aiming to go longer term as well yeah, with the company. Look, well, Helium's about premium. We're, you know, being sort of fairly selective about quality over quantity and, um, and being, you know, looking for those unique projects, but still aiming for a broad audience at the same time. Um, we're probably certainly, given the rise of the streamers and, you know, a lot of our scripted stuff is all aimed primarily at, at the streaming platforms. Um, and that's growing really quite well. Last King of the Cross, obviously delighted with how that's gone. We're, um, we're only three weeks out from pre-production. We shoot in January next year and it'll be, it'll be up on the platform in the second half of 224. Um, more gritty, more powerful, more edgy. It's the second stage of what is really a three-part sort of story set over a 30-year period. So each season's roughly about 10 years. Um, and it's, you know, it's in that, very much in that high-end, high high-concept, true-crime sort of drama space. I mean, I'm a massive fan of those, those brands and those titles, like Gamora, you know, Gangs of London, Sopranos, um, Boardwalk Empire, Peaky Blinders, Goodfellas. It, this belongs on the grid with those titles. Um, and I think it's distinctively different and unique um, a Lebanese immigrant crime family, uh, a world of King's Cross that most people would never have known existed in Australia. You think about the outback and Bondi Beach and the surf and sharks and crocodiles. Well, this is the, the world of the nightlife and a world within a world that few would ever 
have realised actually existed. So it's a wonderful playground to play in, in terms of that sort of true crime genre, all based on, um, all based around uh, a true story, but obviously fictionalised uh, in, in various stages. And those premium scripted projects aimed, as you say, at streamers, but streamers have obviously been changing strategy over the past few years, rating in the budgets. What impact have you seen on the work that you're doing in the marketplace more generally? Yeah, look, I, I, I say that I make that point in relation to streamers only because, you know, there's a, a significant decline in, in, in network, broadcast network commissioning drama. Um, and it's really sort of fishing where the fish are. Um, and the streamers, even in our market, uh, are growing. They're not, they're not commissioning huge amounts of titles per year. So it's, you know, there's a lot of producers who are all kind of fighting for the, the, the amount of commissionings, commissionings that are there. So um, it's, it's, it's kind of where we're all kind of heading, I suppose. But yes, they're, they're all evolving in their own way. I think there's very much uh, an emphasis on broad and commercial and as well. Obviously, there's a lot of competition for, subs for subscriptions out there. So, you know, that makes, it kind of stands to reason that that's kind of where we're all kind of heading, I suppose. And you're developing an unscripted part of the business, as you say, as yes. well. Obviously, you've got a background in that too, but, you know, is part of that effort also related to the fact that, you know, scripted is, is uh, being squeezed slightly? Yeah, look, I think in a, in a market like the Australian market, I think, it, you know, in terms of running an overhead and actually having staff and uh, an actual business, it's, it's difficult to, to do that purely in scripted. I mean, I mean we're, we're still only early days, two years in. We have several other projects from other streamers in funded development, so there's more on the way. Um, and the unscripted side, I think it's given my own background and the fact that I've had a lot of success in that area and done such a lot. It's like, an, it's like putting on an old pair of jeans in lots of ways. So, you know, I'm fairly selective about where we're going in unscripted because, you know, the big five really dominate the landscape with the big, the, those big pipelines of kind of format libraries that they've got. So I'm really looking to be selective and picking off things that I think are great opportunities and, um, and perhaps don't sit within the realms of the big multinational super indies, I suppose. Having run them myself and run outposts of them, um, it's, uh, it's still a world that I, I find really attractive and really interesting. And probably also moving into the factual, sort of premium factual space in Obdoc, um, docufilms, high-end documentaries, things like that. Great stories, you know, so um, I think as a, a startup, as a, a kind of like a, an independent label, you know, it's challenging to do both at the same time. Um, but we're actually doing it, believe it or not. We're just kind of getting there in stages and trying to make each post a winner uh, where we can. You're Australian, but obviously strong relationships with the US market and, and the, the, the strikes which have been taking place over there have had a, a ripple effect across the world. What's been the impact for, for you, you know, and how do you see that playing out? Well, yeah, the US just, I've never, I don't think any of us have seen, you know, this, that market kind of go through what it has in the last 12 months. And it's, there's a ripple effect there. It impacts kind of everyone. It's impacted the UK, it's impacted Australia. 
a lot of Australian actors, directors, producers are all either SAG members or even members of the, um, the guild over there. So it has certainly impacted our market as well. Um, I've been over to the US three times in the last 12 months and it's, 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 it's a really different mood. It's, um, and um, it's good to see them coming out of it, I think. Um, Australia is leaning more and more to the US in lots of ways. Obviously, we're highly influenced by the UK, um, but the US market is becoming more, um, more relevant to us. There's a lot of production services, a lot of, pro a lot of US production that's happening in Australia now. It's actually really growing. If you look at the exchange rate and the rebates that are, that are, that are offered there, the states in Australia are all very competitive about having local production. Um, I think there's a real upside for, for certain specific US productions, not everything. And I'm certainly seeing an increase uh, and an increased presence of US production in Australia. And what about the AI debate? Obviously that was key to the, uh, to the strikes that we've seen in the US. How much of a um, talking point is that in the Australian oh, market? Huge, and... as it is everywhere, you know. It's a huge talking point. It's, um, I think it's here, here to stay and it's only going to get bigger. Um, I do think there's some challenges to be navigated. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's certainly a curveball for writers and, and IP holders. So I'm, I'm very much sympathetic to uh, those issues and what's been hotly debated in the US, which is impacting us and will Im impact the Australian market as well. You know, I mean, change is inevitable. You know, change is, is, is something we all have to adapt to. Um, I see it as a, in a positive sense. I think it's there to be embraced. I think it's as long as it's regulated and managed the right way. I think, you know, smarter people than me will ho hopefully lead the charge in navigating us through the, um, the sort of AI world. But, but I see it as, you know, um, another evolution of change um, and something that we will all uh, live with and, and ultimately I see it as a positive, you know. We're all, we're all afraid of what we don't fully understand. It's a case of how it's managed and regulated for rights holders and, and, and creatives around the world. What are the other opportunities and challenges you see in the coming 12 months? Well, obviously, you know, the economic climate around the world as impacting everybody. Um, so I would like to think that, you know, the, the, the softening of the ad market, there's a bit of a turnaround there. And I think that, <clears throat> I'd like to think that we're in a valley between peaks. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm always absolutely positive. Um, so I think, um, you know, there are great things ahead. And I certainly think the world navigating itself out into sort of more kind of better times from an economic perspective, there's such a lot of pressure on cost. You know, the challenges, you know, that we have to navigate through with being as creative as we can afford to be, um, because the cost of production is increasing, but, you know, the license fees to match that are going the other way. So that's a constant battle at the moment, because we're all looking to deliver premium ideas, certainly helium is. Um, and it's, you know, you're constantly looking to, to pull funding from as many different places that you can to deliver the highest production 
qualities. It's all about what we can put on the screen. I'm, I'm all for that. So when you've mined the rebates and distribution advances and license fees, then you're rattling cans at traffic lights. Seriously, you're just trying to bring us, get as much together as you can to put the highest quality product up on the screen. And that's what drives me, that's what excites me, that's what motivates me. Are you seeing any kind of, I don't know, interesting new avenues for that funding? Obviously we've seen the sort of the, the Barbie effect this year as well, and everyone's talking again about sort of branded content and so forth. I mean, is, is that sort of something that filters into your thinking in any way? And particularly if you're in the music space, I guess there's opportunities there for perhaps different sorts of partnerships. Yeah, look, a lot of my, a lot of my career has been at the crossroads of music and television. So you'll see influences of, of music Paper Dolls, an obvious one. Um, I think uh, I'm, ex I mean, I'm, a, I'm a passionate music person. You know, I've played in bands, I ran MTV, so there's a history there and, you know, and there's, it's one of my great loves in, in life really is, is music. So I, I do think there's opportunities absolutely there. The music business is in itself changing in an extraordinary way um, and and continues to do so. It's probably lagged behind TV and film in some respects, but now it's going through its own evolution, if you like. So I do think there's opportunities there. Uh, I think storytelling, you know, observational docs, you know, there's, there's a lot of those coming through, which I think are fascinating. And I think we'll see more in the scripted space as well, but I certainly as a, you know, I'm very much interested in uh, original music and what you know, the supporting of composers and the licensing opportunities in publishing and things like that in regards to the music side that complements film and television. Mark Fennessy speaking with me earlier this week. Normally, I'd be saying that's all for today, but it's not, as we have another entire episode for you, featuring the C21 team's assessment of the major talking points from MIPCOM 2023, Dory Media Group's Nadav Palti on being among the few Israelis to make it to Cannes, Abacus Media writes Will Stapley on the perfect storm he sees facing the market and BBC Studios' Melanie Romani on the kinds of shows she's looking for. That is all for this episode, but hurry along now and go listen to our next one. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. Listener.